0: The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org.
1: While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times, and he broke down and wept.
0: On April 9th, 1945, in a Nazi concentration camp, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was led from his cell to the gallows, and on the way, he saw a prisoner he knew, and he looked at him and said, this is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. A few months later, after, Uh, one of the Nazi camp doctors recounted Pastor Bonhoeffer's final moments. Quote, Through the half door in one room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer, before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer." At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps of the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued in a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Tahir Iqbal was a Pakistani Muslim in the late 1980s who received a Bible from a friend and as he read it, put his faith in Jesus Christ. With the joy of a new convert, he then began, despite being a paraplegic, to reach out and witness to others, especially the children in his village. On December 7th, 1990, Iqbal, as I said, a paraplegic, was arrested for his faith And he remained in chains, in prison, until his death. Facing the prospect there of execution by hanging, our brother said, I will kiss the rope. I will kiss the rope, but I will never deny my faith. In both Bonhoeffer and Iqbal, we see immense courage and trust in the Lord in the face of death which is a beautiful and striking contrast to what we find in our passage this morning. Please take a copy of God's word and turn with me to the end of Mark 14. The end of Mark chapter 14, Jesus is on trial before the Jewish ruling council in the final night of his life. He's just made eye contact with the most powerful person in Israel, the high priest, and had the audacity to say, not only am I the Messiah and the true high priest, I am also your future judge. He's roundly condemned for blasphemy, for claiming prerogatives that belong to God alone, which gives the bloodthirsty religious leaders the case they need to then take to the Roman governor and get Jesus killed. But before we get to that scene with Pontius Pilate, Mark has something significant to show us because that night jesus didn't just make eye contact with caiaphas he also made eye contact with peter here's what i think is the main idea of these verses the mark of a true disciple is not the absence of sin but the presence of repentance The mark of a true disciple is not the absence of sin, but the presence of repentance. We'll think about this in two simple points. First, the denials, verses 66 to 71. And second, the devastation, verse 72. The denials and the devastation. First, the denials. Before stepping into this scene, we, we need to make sure that we have some previous verses ringing in our ears. Look back at verse 27, Mark 14:27. "After the Last Supper, this is what Jesus said to the disciples before entering Gethsemane. "You will all fall away," Jesus told them, "For it is written, "I will strike the sheep and the sh- I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee." Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. When we looked at that passage, we thought together about the insidious danger of that kind of mentality, the danger of forgetting a warning like 1 Corinthians 10, if you think you're standing firm, if you think you're standing firm, be careful lest you fall. And we thought about how easily our faith, subtly, easily our faith can become misplaced. Peter had confidence but that is not in itself virtuous. Peter had confidence, but that confidence was more in his ability to stand for Jesus than in Jesus' ability to hold him up. Now look at verse 54. Verse 54 Jesus is in chains on trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and we read Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. Which brings us to verse 66. While Peter was below, in the courtyard. Now just, just pause there after that opening phrase in verse 66. Remember the gospel of Mark, as we've often said, is the memoirs of Peter, his eyewitness testimony. The clues are subtle. You have to have eyes for them, but they're nestled in little phrases like this. While Peter was below in the courtyard, it's the only one of the four Gospels that gives us this detail, that Jesus' midnight trial is taking place above those gathered around the fire, perhaps in, in an upper floor of Caiaphas' home. And then suddenly, as he's down there below, around this fire, a low-level servant of the high priest spots Peter. Middle of verse 66, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You, you, you also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. Yes, and I'm willing even to die with him. No. Verse 68. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. Peter's trying to remain incognito in the darkness, but he can't do so because against the glow of the fire, this servant girl is able to make out his face. Maybe she saw him this past week when he was standing beside Jesus in the temple complex as Jesus was debating with the religious leaders. But whatever the reason, she speaks up, but Peter emphatically denies. Just as, just as quickly as she speaks up, he denies this association. In fact, he leaves, if you notice, and he slinks off to the entryway even farther from Jesus. But before he knows it, this girl has turned up there as well and is now getting chatty. Verse 69, when the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. I mean, can't you just imagine her? Like, like, tell me I'm not crazy. Haven't you guys seen him with Jesus before? But Peter doubles down. Verse 70, again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them for for you're a Galilean. In other words, sir, your accent has betrayed you. You're not from here. You're clearly from up north where he's from. You see what's happening, right? There's a major trial 1 a.m., 2 a.m. at this point. In fact, as you'll see, we're even getting to the hours of dawn. This is, this is, this is late into the night, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., whatever, whatever time it is. There, there's a midnight trial going on in Caiaphas' house, but there's also one playing out below. There are two trials. One's formal, the other's not, but the integrity of two men is on the line this night. Both men are being questioned, questioned, questioned. But whereas Jesus passes his test, Peter fails, fails, fails. There's no softening in his heart after realizing he's denied Jesus. No scrambling to start walking back the denial. Instead, Peter just doubles and now triples down. Verse 71 He began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. This reference to cursing and swearing is not just profanity. It's much worse. It's the word for anathematize. Peter is invoking God. He's calling down the wrath and damnation of heaven upon him if he's lying, probably because he knows that something a real disciple of Jesus would never say. He's that desperate to get off, to disassociate from his Lord. How sobering that after the three most incredible years of his life, three years of awe and wonder and the most intimate companionship, he can't even bring himself to say his master's name. Did you notice that? I don't know this man you're talking about. And not just three years. What a change in just a matter of hours. Remember, it was Peter who this very evening had stood up to armed guards and taken a dagger and cut off one of their ears. Someone put the lesson like this. On the night of Jesus' arrest, Peter was willing to kill for Christ but not die for him. He was willing to kill for Christ but not die die for him. In other words, there's a kind of counterfeit faithfulness that's willing to swagger and flex and kill for Christ, but not to suffer with him. Oh, let's beware here at River City Baptist. Let's beware of a kind of bravado that masquerades itself as Christianity, a kind of Christianity that boils down to little more than that. Bravado. It may impress people on social media. It may win attention in an age of outrage, but it does not impress Jesus Christ. Another lesson here is that just as the, you remember from last week, just as the trial witnesses became more and more pathetic and desperate the longer the trial went on, the more they tried to condemn Jesus, so here Peter is becoming more pathetic and desperate the longer the lie goes on. Friends, this is something many of you know from experience. The longer you live with a lie, the harder it becomes to extricate yourself from it. It's one thing to admit you've lied once, but it becomes harder and harder and harder to own up to it the longer it endures. If if you're nursing a lie this morning, a big one or a small one, if if you are in any way Keeping up appearances, embracing pretense, pretending to be someone you're not, whether at church or at home or at work or at school, whatever. If you are nursing a lie like Peter, come clean today. Come clean before it's too late and before it gets even harder to extract yourself from the deception, the denials. Point two. The devastation. We'll spend, we'll spend more time here. The devastation. Look, look there at verse 72. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. And he broke down and wept. These these are strong verbs. These are not tame verbs in the original language. Peter's been broken open, broken to pieces, and he's on the ground sobbing. We've gone from a dinner declaration of, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will never, ever disown you to this. From bravado to brokenness. I think there's much we can learn here about the nature of true repentance. Uh, I'll just give you three um, defining features, three marks of true repentance in light of this passage. Three marks of true repentance to watch out for in your own life. This is not just an academic exercise. This is the Holy Spirit addressing you. Three marks of true repentance from this passage. First, repentance is prompted by God's word. Repentance is prompted by God's word. What causes Peter to fall apart and break apart in pieces? Mark says he, quote, remembered the word Jesus had spoken. In other words, he remembered something God had said, and it was that hearing which melted his heart. This is why it's so important to get familiar with the voice of God in Scripture. If you you don't expose yourself to his words or remember his words or get others in your life to help bring to mind his words, then how will you ever be moved to repent? And again, this is why we need a church to bring to mind his words in one another's lives. How else will you remember what Jesus said in a way that will lead you to repentance unless you're living together with those who are committed to reminding you of his truth. And Luke provides for us one other detail, that at the sound of the rooster, and I won't make the rooster sound, (laughs) Jesus turns and he looks at Peter. Of course, we don't know exactly his facial expression, but I think we can know what it wasn't. I mean, surely he didn't look at Peter and wink as if the denials weren't a big deal. And I also have to think he didn't look at Peter and just scowl as if Jesus wanted nothing more to do with him. I think most likely it was a look of deep sadness, hurt, betrayal, but not just that. In the eyes of Jesus, Peter also found a flash, not of condemnation, but of compassion. It was a look of sadness, but also a look of love. In his life, Peter's life would never be the same. But don't miss the order of events. Jesus gave him that look before Peter had repented. It's not the repentance of Peter that caused or earned the compassion of Jesus. The lesson here is Romans 2, 4. God's kindness is entitled, is intended to lead you to repentance. Beloved, it's not our repentance that leads to his kindness. It's his kindness that leads to our repentance. Number two, lesson number two, mark of true repentance. Repentance is the opposite of defensiveness. Repentance is the opposite of defensiveness. Notice Peter doesn't say, I'm really, really sorry, sincerely sorry, but hey, everyone makes mistakes. Or can't you understand, Jesus, why I was afraid? all these soldiers around, they've just arrested you? Or, well, Jesus, at least I'm here in the courtyard a lot closer than the other disciples who are probably halfway back to Galilee by now. You're welcome. No, zero justification, zero excuse making. He just falls down and sobs. One of the marks of true repentance is that you're not obsessed with mitigating the consequences. You're not obsessed with mitigating the consequences or spending your energy trying to explain away what you did because of the circumstances. Just this morning, I, I was comforting one of my children and heard myself saying the words, are, are, are you sad about the consequence or are you sad about your sin? As Spurgeon once put it, if I hate sin because of the punishment, I have not repented of sin. I merely regret that God is just. In an article titled, Repentance vs. Defensiveness, Gavin Ortland points out that we tend to respond to accurate criticism in one of those two ways, repentance or defensiveness. Theologically, we're all about the former. Theologically, we affirm the former. We love the former. We preach sermons on the former, but functionally, we so often default to the latter. It's a, defensiveness is, is as instinctive to us as flinching when a punch is coming. But these are two very different heart postures. A defensive heart says, but look what I did right. Diversion. A repentant heart says, here specifically is what I did wrong. Honesty. A defensive heart says, but look what was done to me. Distraction. A repentant heart says, here's how I contributed to the conflict. Ownership. A repentant heart says, it wasn't that bad. Downplaying a repentant heart says, it was a big deal. Admission. As Ortland goes on to explain, repentance requires a kind of relaxation, if you think about it. You have to be relaxed in a certain sense in order to not be defensive. You will only be able to resist defensiveness and embrace repentance if you don't feel like every criticism lodged against you is an existential threat to who you are, as if your identity is at stake because you know your identity is safe and secure in Christ, which frees you knowing your identity is in Christ Frees you to receive criticism. It frees you to not take yourself so seriously because in Christ you have nothing to hide, nothing to prove, and nothing to lose. Ortland writes, it's a counterintuitive feeling, like learning to use a muscle we didn't know we had. Or better yet, finally learning to relax a muscle we've always kept tight. Beloved, true repentance begins where defensiveness ends. True repentance begins where defensiveness ends. The third mark of true repentance, a third mark, there's obviously many more we could say, is that repentance leads to change. Repentance leads to change. Here we have to go beyond Mark's gospel to see the rest of Peter's story play out. Because his story, let's be honest, his story could have ended here, in a puddle of tears. Tears time would have proven to be tears of exposure, tears of embarrassment, tears of worldly grief, but not tears of true repentance. Turn with me to John 21. John chapter 21 very end. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and this is the very last chapter of John. The last scene Jesus has risen from the dead and he's appeared to his disciples right on, the, on a beach, on, the, on the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Listen, starting in verse 15. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? That is these, these other disciples. Yes, Lord. He said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. A threefold denial matched and even superseded by a threefold restoration. And he's not just being restored to the sidelines, he is being restored completely. Jesus is saying, "My dear Peter, I want you to be a leader in my church." Kind of reminds me of Jonah three one. Uh, one time, I was preparing a sermon on the cha- uh, on a chapter in Jonah, and another pastor I knew in town showed up at the coffee shop I was working at, asked me what I was preaching. I told him, and he goes, "Oh, Jonah three one is one of my favorite verses in the Bible." And I was like, "Jonah three one." I've never seen that on a coffee mug. You know what Jonah 3.1 says? Then the word of the Lord appeared to Jonah a second time. God didn't give up on Jonah. God didn't give up on Peter. He reestates him and redeploys him for gospel ministry. Now turn to Acts chapter 4. This is just a, actually a f- couple pages later. Acts chapter 4 we see Peter standing boldly and declaring truth to power, speaking truth to power before who else but Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. The same group of people who interrogated his Lord while he was busy denying him to a slave girl. Now he makes eye contact of his own and says in verse 10, It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. And they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. Do you hear the contrast? Mark 14. I've seen you with him. You're one of his people. You've been with him. His moment of deepest shame Acts 4, you've been with Jesus, a moment of remarkable witness. Friends, time will always tell whether repentance is real. Only time can tell whether repentance is real. If there's no enduring fruit, then maybe there was no change at all. Recently, as I was reading through Exodus, in my quiet times, I was struck by something I'd never seen before in chapter nine. Okay, chapter nine of Exodus, plague after plague has fallen on the Egyptians due to their hard-hearted Pharaoh, but finally he relents finally there's a softening in his heart that's been just made of granite with pellets of hail raining down we read in in Exodus 9:27 then pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron this time i have sinned no excuses No blame shifting, no justifications. Pharaoh says, this time I have sinned. He didn't say that during the first several plagues. These are new words we're reading. This time I have sinned. Yahweh is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. It's the first time he's owned up to his evil. And for all we know, he was sincere. And yet here's what's so chilling. Just six verses later, not six chapters Six verses later, we read Exodus 9, Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands toward the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. Oh, friends, beware of false repentance. Remorse is not repentance. Regret is not repentance. Resolve is not repentance. Tears are not repentance. Repentance is an inward miracle wrought by the Holy Spirit, which causes a person to turn from their evil and toward the mercy of God. In other words, repentance is when you disown your sin just as forcefully as Peter disowned his Lord. And it's not a one-time thing. It's not a one-time thing. Some of you grew up assuming that. Maybe you assume that today. A one-time thing where you get your repentance ticket stamped and you can put it in your pocket and sit on it for the rest of your life. No, it's not what you do simply to get in the kingdom, nor is repentance the thing you only occasionally do every few months or years when you've really, really blown it. No, biblical repentance is a lifestyle. Biblical repentance is the cadence. It's the music of the Christian life. As you turn from sin and to Christ, from sin and to Christ, from sin and to Christ, day after day after day. And when you are repenting, not because you've been caught and just want to evade consequences, but because you've again remembered the Lord's word and locked eyes with him and found compassion there. That turning from sin to Jesus unlocks floodgates of mercy and transforming power. You can take Proverbs 28, 13 to the bank. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. What a promise. I, I love this observation from John Chrysostom, who pastored in modern-day Turkey, modern-day Istanbul, 1,700 years ago. He, he said this, be ashamed when you sin, not when you repent. Be ashamed when you sin, not when you repent. Sin is the wound. Repentance is the medicine. Sin is followed by shame. Repentance is followed by boldness. But Satan has overturned this order and given boldness to sin and shame to repentance. Oh, beware the devil's schemes. Don't be outwitted by him. You know the way Satan works, right? Before you sin, what's he going to make you think about repentance before you sin? He's going to make you think repentance is really easy yeah, go ahead and sin. Repentance is easy. It's no big deal. But after you sin, what's he going to try to convince you of? Repentance is impossible. That was finally the difference between Judas and Peter, wasn't it? Both failed terribly. Judas failed terribly. Peter failed terribly, but one was lost while the other was saved. The decisive difference, of course, had to do with God's mysterious sovereign plan. But there's another factor as well. When Peter was exposed, he didn't flee the Lord. He didn't run from the Lord in the cowardice of despair. He came to the Lord in brokenhearted trust. As one commentator put it, both men knew despair. Judas and Peter, both men knew despair, but Judas despaired of God and of grace, whereas Peter despaired of self and found hope in Christ and his word. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters, every single sin you've ever committed is a mini-denial Every time you follow your heart rather than your master, it's like standing, you're standing beside Peter at that ancient fire, denying Christ rather than denying self. But there's a difference between Peter's sin and our sin. You know what that is? What's the difference between Peter's sin and our sin? Ours is worse. Ours is worse. You say, how how could you say that, Matt? Peter got to live with Jesus for three years. He got to walk with Jesus for three years. He didn't just get to walk with Jesus, he got to walk on water toward Jesus. He got to see Jesus unveiled in a blaze of divine glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. What do you mean that it's worse? For us, my sins are worse than his. Well, the answer, beloved, is that when Peter was denying his master around that fire, he didn't yet know, fully know, about the cross and empty tomb you do. And so when we fail to live for Jesus, when you fail to live for Jesus, you are sinning against more knowledge than Peter had. You know more about the wonder of gospel grace than he did at this moment. You know that Jesus would go on in a matter of hours to die in the place of cowards and rebels just like us draining the cup of God's wrath before counting to three and walking out of the tomb and you know that everyone who repents and believes in him is forgiven of all their failures, past, present, and future and given a brand new heart to walk in his ways. We know more about the gospel than Peter did and so when we deny our master, by failing to deny self. We commit a far more personal and serious offense against the Lord of love. Never believe the lie, brothers and sisters. Never believe the lie that you can bypass repentance to get to grace. That you can bypass repentance to get to grace. That's like thinking that you can get from here to the Atlantic Ocean by going west. That's not the way it works. Repentance is not the way to to earn a gift from God. Repentance is the gift from God, which means, and here's the bottom line, repentance is not just this special Thing like this extracurricular activity in the Christian life that the overachievers lean into. Either it's repentance is not something that either the really terrible Christians do or something that e- the, the really radical Christians do. Repentance is something that all real Christians do. And the fact that repentance is a gift, not a gift you give to God, but a God, a gift He gives to you, that should encourage you afresh this morning because listen to me repentant believers are assured believers. You want assurance of your salvation? Are you turning from your sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? When you repent, you realize what you're doing. You're you're plunging your heart. You're plunging your sin. You're plunging yourself into the far greater heart of Jesus Christ. And his heart is big enough to absorb your sin. Maybe you think, well, Gosh, but how how do I know if I'm a Peter or a Judas? Well, are you despairing of sin or despairing of grace? Do you believe Jesus came to seek and save the lost? Do you believe that it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, that he came not to call the righteous, but sinners to himself? No matter the magnitude of your failure, whether a massive sin in the past or an ongoing struggle in the present, the heart of Jesus Christ is not believer. It is not this morning recoiling from you. It is expanding toward you. Even this morning, he's moving with glad, eager, happy mercy toward those who've come to the end of themselves. And if that describes you, if you have come to the end of yourself and come to him, then you can enjoy the sweetness of assurance, knowing that there is now no condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're turning to him, beloved, he will no more abandon you. Then he abandoned Peter. You are safe and secure in the arms of the one who loves you. Well, in conclusion, we've seen Jesus standing before the chief priest and Peter standing before the servant girl. In other words, you don't have to be in a courtroom to be on trial, you don't have to be in a courtroom. To be on trial. Our integrity is always on the line, and therefore we need not just this story's sober warning, but also its gospel hope. See, Peter, if you think about it, Peter was charged with something true that night, wasn't he? He was charged with something true. You've been with Jesus, and yet he was able to go free. Jesus was charged with something false, and yet he was condemned. But think about it how do we even know this story? How do we know about Peter's denials? None of the other disciples were there. How do we know this humiliating, shameful story? Because Peter looked at Mark and said, I want you to include this. Before they see me as an apostle, as one of the highest leaders, they need to see me as the greatest failure. In his remarkable scholarly work, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, Richard Balcom concludes this. No one in the early church other than Peter himself would have dared or wished to highlight the weakness and failure of the most revered apostle with the candor Mark's narrative does. Therefore, the only possible source for the account of Peter's denial would have been Peter himself. If you were making up a religion this is not a story you would include. It's too inconvenient. This is not the way to win people to your cause and build trust in your leadership. But of course, the secret and glory of Christianity is that it rides on only one man's fitness for leadership and his name is not Peter. The leader of the church is the one proclaimed in our call to worship If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. The lesson of this passage, and it would be very easy to teach it like this, the lesson of this passage is not just don't be a coward. Do better. Be more courageous. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was courageous, but he still needed a savior. Tahir Iqbal was courageous, but he still needed a savior. The lesson of this text is that we need to look away from ourselves to the only one whose mercy and love can melt your heart and change your life, who can take that tightened muscle. Oh, that muscle has been tight for so long in you, that tightened muscle of defensiveness, and enable you to finally relax, who can help you to pray, Lord, when I fail like Peter, not if, but when, this coming week, I fail like Peter. Plunge me ever deeper into your heart. Your heart's not recoiling from me, so help me not to run from you. Plunge me ever deeper into your heart, into that ocean of grace, and thereby help me become a channel of that same grace to others. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this story that you've included in your inspired word. We pray that we would derive warning and encouragement from it. We pray that ultimately we would look beyond Peter, beyond Bonhoeffer, beyond any martyr, Lord, that we would look to Jesus Christ alone as the one who stood and never fell, as the one who didn't need his sins forgiven but rather came to forgive the sins of sinners just like us And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who has been living for self rather than denying self, who has been not repenting of sin, maybe harboring sin, maybe nursing sin, maybe coddling sin, maybe living a lie, but not turning from sin and trusting Christ, we pray that they would do business with you today and they would be made right with you. And it's in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.